because everybody is harmed by fat phobia. Mm -hmm. We liberate everybody and give them the right to be fat. There's no more power in anti-fatness. Welcome to Holy Ghosting, a podcast about deconstruction with your middle-aged mom friends. I'm Lindsay, and if my body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, my temple is filled with Doritos and Rosé. And I'm Meg, and I know every body is a wonderland, or fearfully and wonderfully made, and remains wonderful your entire life. And I'm Sarai, and my New Year resolution is, I have boobs, and it's okay that they exist, and they're fine as they are, even if I have to use a crane to foist them up as high as I need them to be to not hurt my back. Amen. Let's get into it. We are super excited to welcome a very special guest today, Amanda Martinez Beck. She is an author, a fat activist, a body image coach, and she has a lot to say about religion, evangelicalism, and fatness. And we are excited and like nervous to get into this topic because I know it's triggering for a lot of people. It is super sensitive. And I think a lot of us have the whole point of this podcast, what we're trying to do is talk about some of the toxic messages of our youth and the church. And we figured what better person to talk about this subject than Amanda. She's I followed her on Instagram. So her Instagram handle is your body is good. And I have been online friends with you for a while now. And I'm constantly blown away by I mean, you've changed my mindset on so many things in the way that how I have internalized some of these messages of my youth and how I view it. And even just like the statement, your body is good, how that even feels like a radical statement. It's so simple, but I think that many of us were raised to view that our bodies are, that our bodies are inherently simple, that, um, yeah, just there's, I, I'm not totally sure why, and maybe this is what we can get into with you, but I first want to hear about sort of your history, how you were raised, like, you know, what, what was your growing up experience in, in the church where you raised, you know, we were all very like Rush Limbaugh kids. So that was oh, our, yes. yeah. Okay. Uh, my husband and I bonded over knowing all of the Rush Limbaugh commercials. <laughs> Amazing. So we were, we were both Rush babies. Is what we call them. So. Rush babies. <laughs> yeah. We're, we're, we understand and we're sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, I was a Rush baby and a Dr. Laura baby. Oh, yeah. Dr. She's Laura. So uh, mean. So yes. mean. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like any child who was raised like with parents who are into Dr. Laura is in therapy now. That is my. Yep. You guys, I just realized something. Do you think we thought she was extra mean because she was a woman and really she was just the same amount of mean as Rush Limbaugh and we are just internalizing misogyny and then projecting it back on Dr. Laura? Yes. Maybe. Yeah, probably. I think though that since Dr. Laura was specifically talking about families and children and raising oh, children, maybe we were kids to like it, her like rules impacted us yeah the more. authoritarian nature right because i feel like my parents didn't take rush and apply that to like how they treated me necessarily oh i think my right? mom was more of a dobson mom but well, i digress yeah. okay go on <laughs> <laughs> so you're a rush oh, baby <laughs> yes i'm a rush baby and i grew up going to an evangelical bible church so very much rugged individualism um, we didn't, we weren't connected to any other churches. We were just our own Bible church. Um, and it, in a lot of ways, it was a really lovely place to grow up with people that loved me 
at church. Um, but a lot of the theology I have been disentangling myself from over the past several years. Um, it gave me a love for the scripture, which is something I don't take for granted um, because I think that I take the view on the Bible that it is something I want to know. And I'm really thankful for learning it so much as a child, but having my worldview of it kind of flipped upside down um, and that it's not a rule book. So mm. um, grew up with the purity movement, true love weights, was given a purity ring. My parents took me out to dinner at the nicest restaurant in town. And it was so fancy. And they gave me this purity ring. And, um, you know, I uh, agreed to not have sex until I was married. And um, which was a big deal in my family because my sister got pregnant in high school. Mm -hmm. So, um, and has a lovely family, just started really young. Um, but my parents were very much uh, abstinence only at sex education. Um, and of course, youth group was all about purity talks. I remember <laughs> so <laughs> much. Yeah. Uh -huh. My pastor's wife did a talk where she brought a bra that she had written WWJD on. Oh, show oh. us. <laughs> And I went home. What kind of bra would Jesus wear? That's Wait, yeah. That's what what I was the message here? <laughs> like when you're making out with your boyfriend, just to remember. So like I went home and dutifully <gasps> wrote WWJD on my uh -oh. bra that I wore. Oh, like, you had Christian a girl. Yeah. You had that message on your bra in case your shirt like accidentally came off up off. or off. Right. <laughs> Whoa. Just a good yeah. reminder. What would Jesus do? That's oh, amazing. Yes. Also merch idea. Just <laughs> real quick. Yeah, we should. Yeah. Amanda, can we make sell bras with that? Do on? it. <laughs> yes. Do it. We we talk about one of our ideas for merches because uh, I grew up going to a Christian camp called Heavenly Hills and my mom had a really cool 80s sweatshirt with it like in 80s lettering across her chest and like she ha would have dudes be like heavenly hills huh and so she stopped wearing the heavenly hills sweatshirt <laughs> well I was like that's amazing I want a heavenly hills sweatshirt. yeah we like it <laughs> <laughs> can we please get that made ASAP Sarai's <laughs> working on it I am I'm I'm not a professional graphic designer so everything takes me a really long time but I do have some fonts yeah, Christian <laughs> Twin Peaks. I love it. Yeah, yes. oh, I like it. Exactly. We uh yeah, it'll be a good time. Okay, so you wore the WWJD bra, bra faithfully, and I never had a boyfriend, so it wasn't even an issue. <laughs> never made out. I didn't have my first kiss till I was a freshman in college. Aw. And it was really sweet and special, and I'm glad it worked out the way that it did, but I was deep into purity culture. Mm. Yeah. And of course, I thought I was going to marry that first boyfriend because I thought I was going to marry every guy I've dated because that's kind <laughs> of what we're. I mean, that was our goal, right? Like the goal was find a good Christian man to marry and then serve, I think. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And it's for a really sure. interesting thing. I feel like for myself, looking back on that, 
goal-oriented kind of relationship framework, it's a lot, a lot of pressure to put on every relationship from the beginning. Like even my crushes, I'd be like, well, could I marry that person? You know, it's, it was never fun. (laughs) No, dating was not fun. It was very, yeah, it was super heady and really serious. And if you were having fun, which is again, I think it's funny, we were coming out with an episode called Little Rebellions, which we kind of get into a lot of like body stuff and how it took a lot of us until we were much older to be able to like understand that like your body can be fun, you know, and like that was certainly, certainly not a message of our youth. So yeah, yeah. so much shame, like in every aspect. Yes, so much shame about bodies. I remember um, one interaction I had, I was, I've always had really big thighs and because they're super muscular, um, I will say I grew up in a larger body, larger than everybody around me, but I wasn't what I now consider fat. Um, I was plus size right on the, the verge of plus size at size 14 to 16. And I just assumed that my body was never attractive because I was in a larger body mm-hmm. because my friends who were in smaller bodies always dated in high school, junior high even. And that just was never in the cards for me, which was probably because I had a big like X, I mean, literally WWJD written on my bra. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> Seems like you're pretty closed a, off to a bit of a deterrent there for the boys. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but I assumed that was because of my body size. Mm. I didn't know that there were people who were attracted to bodies of all sizes. And so I just assumed it's not a big deal. So I remember I wore a shorter skirt to church one Sunday and I never kept my legs closed because. I just didn't work those muscles. And so I was just sitting like I would normally sit with them pretty much closed, but not like enough. And I remember one of the moms that helped with youth group making eye contact with me and was like, close your legs. Mm. And I remember just being like baffled because I did not consider my body to be sexual at all. Why would that be a big deal Mm. to have my knees kind of open? And so the, the tie between purity culture and living in a larger body was always a weird thing for me. Um, I always had a large chest because I, I come from a well-endowed line. <laughs> same, same. <laughs> yeah. 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 We're and actually most of we talk about boobs a lot on this podcast. Yeah. We're, well, we're well-endowed women. So, yeah. I mean, the heavenly hills. The heavens are hills. We're gonna make the t-shirts with like extra room for boobs. That's I love that's it. That'd be great. Yeah. Um I had a hard time finding modest clothing that didn't reveal my cleavage. Um, yes. and the larger that you get as a human, the harder it gets to find quote modest clothing. Mm-hmm. And so that was one of the first things that I, as I started awakening to this realization that, oh, my body is sexual, but that's not an inherently bad thing. Well, 
can I wear the same shirt as my friend, even though I have a ton more cleavage and trying to learn how to be okay with that. So my heavenly hills were a part of that awakening. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and now that we're, you know, older and sort of obviously disentangling ourselves from these things we were raised with, it's just so wild. It's like, so just because I naturally was born with a bigger chest, I can't wear the same shirt as like that girl. Like it just, it, it was so hard. I can't remember bathing suit shopping was a nightmare for me. And just oh. to figure out what was appropriate. And it's just like, just trying to find things that would cover the body parts I was just born with. It just, I, yeah. And it filled me with a lot of hatred towards my body because it was like, I'm a very type A control freak. And it's like, this is a thing I couldn't control. You know, it was like, mm. I just have them. And then I grew to hate them, you know, like, yeah. because I was told that like, that it was, if they were showing at all, that I was a bad Christian girl. So yeah. Right. <laughs> to this day, I literally wear, oh, I forgot. <laughs> it's lower than usual. I literally wear a tank top underneath all of my Oh, that's why it was low. My arm didn't go through it. <laughs> Sorry, I showed you all my boobs, um, but pretend like the object lesson was there. See there. I always wear that um, because I don't just got a little Sarai strip tease. For- <laughs> yeah, you're welcome, everybody in the morning. <laughs> um, and I'm wearing a real bra today. So that's very exciting for everybody. Um, anyway, the the point is I still wear a T-shirt under all of my clothes, because I know I can put, pull it up a little bit if I have some cleavage start showing. And of course, you know, after having children, my cleavage starts like basically at my um, collarbone. Yeah. <laughs> Just <laughs> clavicles and cleavage. Um, but that's, that's an interesting thing because I actually forgot why I do that. It's just such a habit. I've been doing it forever. Uh, including like I was, 30 or so. And I was at work one day and wearing just like a totally normal, it was the time of peplums. It was a cute little shirt. And my boss was like, I can see all the way down your shirt. Are you aware of that? And I was like, hmm, well, thank you for letting me know. And then I felt like I was at church everywhere I went. So it's fun. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I know. Well, I mean, because obviously it's not just church that's like terrible about bodies. It's it's the world at large. But I am curious, Amanda, like how you feel like your experience, but also the evangelical church as a whole <clears throat> deals with fatness. And do have you had the experience of scripture being weaponized against you or people that, you know, I'm, I'm curious how specifically um, cause I, I grew up in a, in a smaller body and as I've gotten older and had kids, you know, I've certainly struggled, but I, it wasn't a thing I had to think about as a kid at all. My youngest sister has struggled with this and we've talked about it a bit as just like even how our parents treated us. And like, there's just so much that I didn't realize, you know? And so I, I'm very curious how you were, you know, treated by the church and how, and, and now as you continue and, I guess I didn't say at the beginning, do you still identify as a person of faith? You're, you're involved. I in am a Christian. Still. Okay. Yes. Okay. Okay. We're, we're all kind of at different parts in our faith journey. So I don't want to make assumptions, but that's where I thought you landed. So just curious. Yes. So how the church views fatness and evangelical, I'll speak on evangelical church. Cause that's what I was immersed in, even though I am now Catholic, I was drawn to the Catholic church because of the way that it dealt with bodies in a way that the evangelical church just had no way to deal with. Um, more of a sacramental type approach. Mm. 
in the evangelical church, we start the story at the fall of humankind, right? That's where the story starts for evangelicals that, okay, God made the world, skip any detail there. And then humans wanted control. And then we ate something and that caused our downfall. Mm. The act of eating is associated with sin. Wow. I've never thought of that before. Ever. The very first sin is eating something. Wow. (gasps) That's amazing. So (laughs) I'm, I'm losing it right now. (laughs) I, this, okay. I, I had disorder. I've had disordered eating my entire life. I've, my weight has fluctuated up and down throughout my life. Um, I just have had like issues with my body. Um, and that's maybe the wrong way of saying it. I have had self-imposed and externally imposed likes, dislikes. Um, yeah. People just talked about our bodies so much that I think it, it almost made it seem like it was normal for me to have an obsession with my body and size and weight and all of that. And for you to reveal this thing for the first time, I, I don't even know what to do with that information. It's (laughs) this is yeah. Wow. (laughs) I'm, I'm stunned. I just, I have never considered how much, I cared so much about being a good girl and about not sinning and about following all the rules. And that was never something that I outright associated as sinful, but in every conversation about food, about controlling yourself, about, oh. It's a really powerful image. If we start at the fall, if we're thinking about the origins of humanity and we don't start at the creation, which is where it actually starts in the scripture. Then we're left with the first time we think about anybody eating is it being this literally the reason that Jesus had to die was because someone ate something they weren't supposed to hmm. that lacked self-control. And so that is a huge burden because we have to eat three times a day at least to maintain energy to function. And it just perpetuated this obsession with, I am bad. All the things my body does are bad. All of my appetites are evil. Mm -hmm. Instead of starting at the creation where God says, all these things are good. And of course, Um, humans were eating before whatever happened in whatever garden, like however you choose to think about that metaphorically or, or literally, um, Catholics believe there was a literal Adam and Eve, even though they believe in evolution. So it's this weird mix of things. We have no paradigm of what eating looks like in a good way until we get the feasts later in the scriptures. But but Christians, we don't talk about those things. Mm. Um, and so the idea that our bodies are inherently bad, that they're our flesh that we need to fight against, that's just so real in the evangelical mindset. And think about what is the first response 
to eating the forbidden fruit is shame about your body. Oh, right. They realized they were naked and they wanted to hide themselves. So eating and shame, it's no wonder that we are so obsessed with food and body image Mm. because that's where the story has started for so many of us. And it's so interesting because I've never heard like a sermon preached on that. You know, I don't feel like anyone's ever talked about the original sin being that Eve ate, but it's just like implied. And I think that that, and again, I think it's so interestingly tied to purity culture because in a similar way, you know, I feel like we always ran with it, like the nakedness, like that being naked was the, like that was the realization, but I didn't, I think I just not realize how closely tied it was together. Just it's everything about your, but there's so much shame in the, in giving into the desires of the flesh, whatever that may be. That's, there's actually (laughs) several desires and yeah. Hmm. Wow. That's a, yeah. Wow. I I'm, um, I'm contemplating this idea too, that you're talking about with shame, that sexual shame, personal shame, body shame, that even, you know, Adam and Eve looked at themselves and felt shame for the first time about their bodies, that they had never felt that before. And that the result from eating something forbidden was to feel shame about your body. And like Lindsay said, that was never a sermon that was outright taught. But I remember those flannel stories in Sunday school and how they would hide them behind the bushes, you know, so that you couldn't see their nakedness and how we were just indoctrinated with this idea that food and body are shameful things instead of Amanda, like you're saying that we were made in God's image. I mean, shouldn't that be that creation moment, the time where we were born and created, that was our perfection moment, you know? Um, so what about that? H- how do we get back to that love, self-love and the the idea that we're made in God's image and that God is perfect and therefore we can embody that perfection? For me, it has gone back to that declaration. Um, again, the scripture is still an important book for me. So I recognize it's not that for everybody, but um, that God takes a look at everything. And once he creates humans, he says, God says, excuse me, it is very good. So what does that mean? That means that my body, my fully incarnated body and soul are good. And I want to know what goodness is. And I've heard uh, there's a preacher named Graham Cook who has an audio. um, He's really big in charismatic circles. So I wouldn't be surprised if you had heard of him, but he talks about God being good. And he just says it over and over again, like God is good. God is good. And the more I hear the word good, the more I get frustrated. What does that mean? We don't Mm -hmm. talk about goodness. We don't talk about delight. And one of the things um, that drew my husband and me to the Catholic church was the, the, the idea that God created the world out of sheer goodness. Mm. It's just this abandonment of goodness, like overflowing, abundant. And 
And we have taken that abundance and we have corseted it. (laughs) And we have said, no, it has to be restrained into this certain way of having a body, the certain way of talking, the certain way of expressing our sexual identity. Um, And that unruly goodness, like if you could see my hands right now, I'm waving them about just imagining kind of like cloud billowing out from the sky. Like how, how do we sit in that idea of goodness? The ancients had the concept of good as something that fulfilled its purpose. Mm-hmm. And so that got me started thinking about what is the purpose of my body? And I believe that the purpose of my body is relationship. Because no matter my ability, my cognitive functioning, my physical health, no matter where I find myself, I am able to have relationship with God and with others and with myself. And so if goodness means I'm fulfilling my purpose, then having relationships is what I'm here for. And I can do that in no matter what kind of body I'm in. Mm-hmm. Even I remember being pregnant, having a relationship with my unborn child mm-hmm. or hearing stories about people who are in comas, who hear everything that's happening um, to the elderly and the frail and the, the dying. Instead of performance being what makes my body good, mm-hmm. this existence, this connected existence is what makes my body good. And so that's how I've started to claw my way out of this belief that I have to be a certain size, that I need to be at a certain performing level, just that, that concept of goodness and that my purpose is relationship. Hmm. I I love that so much. Yeah. The definition of goodness in evangelicalism is so narrow. And I think that like, if you weren't walking the, you know, the narrow road, then (laughs) yet you weren't by definition good or useful or, and I think that, you know, all of us felt so like you had to be this exact way. You had to be perfect to be useful in the kingdom of God. And if not, and it's, we've discussed this a little bit, but you know how like ableist the theology is that we were raised with, that you were only valuable to the church for like what you could do mm-hmm. for the church totally. and how many chairs you could stack on a Sunday or you know whatever. <laughs> like, <laughs> you better yeah. be there. Or you better be the first one showing up in the morning volunteering and the last one leaving. Like that's, that's the expectation of, of, good good little evangelicals and not even necessarily women i think that's anyone in the church was expected that so for sure there is a a moment in my life when i became disabled where i had to realize that stacking chairs or serving in ministry was could it be the focus of my worship Um, my disability came on rather gradually, um, and realizing I was disabled and wondering what that meant for my role as a Christian really caused me to contend with these questions again. What is the purpose of going to church? What is the purpose of being a follower of God? Um, and realizing that it's that unbounded goodness of relationship is really 
liberating. Yeah. I saw a post recently that you had posted about, about how you don't owe thinness to anyone. And I think you said something like, and you don't know oathiness to God, which is such an interesting, like, can you expand upon that? What, what does that mean? Like, I mean, now that I'm older, I don't believe I'm like, yeah, I don't think God cares, but yeah. Do you think that this is an internalized message that people have from evangelicalism? Absolutely. So the way that we think about bodies in evangelical culture is greatly influenced by the Protestant work ethic and the spirit yeah. of capitalism. Yeah. yeah. Hell yeah. yeah. Oh, we know all about that. <laughs> mm, if you're a Proverbs 31 woman, you know what we're talking about. <laughs> That's right. Can I also just add, I have major beef with the Apostle Paul because I definitely see the writings uh, that he contributed to what is now the New Testament as a basis for make your body a slave and if you're a woman, cover your head and shut up. Like all those different things that I think we as American Protestant Christians have internalized and that still come out in our general culture. Like while you were talking about our original sin was eating something we weren't supposed to eat. And then what followed was shame. It makes me think of all the food commercials I saw in like the eighties and nineties that were like, here's an ice cream cake. Mm, indulgent, sinful, delicious. <laughs> and then other things that were like, it's fat free. So now you don't even have to feel bad about it. That's the kind of nonsense that we, we are fed constantly. And one of my original questions that I, I'm kind of feeling like you're unpacking without having had me ask it is how, how is it like, how do we even differentiate between the general culture that we're in and the evangelical influence. And I think your, your approach to saying this Protestant work ethic is a big piece of that, I think is also a part of our American individualism and all that stuff. So, and if I may, our worship of whiteness and white supremacy, which is also a huge yeah. part of this. Like, if you're not thin, you're bad. It's like, okay, Western Europeans, like, shut up. <laughs> okay, so I talk about this in my book, which is called More of You, The Fat Girl's Field Guide to the Modern World. But the origins of fat phobia are in white supremacy. Not surprising. Where I am shocked. That <laughs> is where so many terrible things come from. It's we just almost keep like, discovering it. It's almost like white supremacy is the problem. Oh, it's gosh, almost, almost like it's all the problems. Yeah, go on. So when... Um, Dutch and your other European explorers went to Africa and brought back human beings as sideshow freaks and things to show off to contemporary society. African women had thicker, fuller bodies. And in an effort to distinguish themselves from these African women, white women started be believing perpetuating the belief that their the african bodies were that way because of moral deficiency Ugh, as, as opposed to genetic diversity wow and God, so, that's some horrifying bullshit right there i just want us to all take a moment and recognize the disgustingness of that worldview Mm. Absolutely. Um, but the attempt to be 
diminutive and thin, not only diminutive because our religion has a propensity towards misogyny, but to embody that physically as a way of expressing spiritual and moral authority um, is really where Christianity or its so-called adherence has co-opted this this white supremacist language of thinner is better morally. It has to do with food, the foods that we eat in different cultures. It has to do with genetic diversity within cultures and between cultures. The white supremacist lens of thinner is better has been applied to the scripture. Verses get pulled out like your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit wherein Paul is actually using the plural you, your Mm. body, as in the gathering of Christians Mm. is a temple of the Holy spirit. It doesn't, it didn't mean your flesh, but we, we see it that way. And um, the image is about running Um, Hebrews chapter 12, like uh, run the race with endurance. Um, Mm. Those those images are are filtered through that white supremacist lens and given an uh, an unfair burden to those of us who live in this culture of white supremacy. I remember praying desperately as a child to lose weight mm. because my family, as loving as they were, held up thinness as the ideal. And my body didn't conform while my sister's body did. And to the point where I was put on diets as a young child. Oh, no. God. And um, I'm going to share a story that's, that's disturbing, but it's my story. Um, I was dreaming i was sleeping we were on a trip to dallas which is a couple hours away from home so just a weekend trip and i was sleeping on the floor of a hotel for some reason because there was just one bed in the room and i dreamt that i was standing there begging my parents for food begging them to feed me because i was so hungry and my parents just looking at me with sorrow in their eyes but shaking their heads no at me and it just caused me to cry and I actually was crying in real life my mom woke me up and I told her the dream and she was heartbroken by it but I didn't realize at the time that my psyche was telling me you're not eating enough Mm. and the reason you don't eat enough is because the people who are supposed to care for you are limiting that food whoa my parents' motivation was health because they're both in the healthcare profession, but health and thinness were equated mm. because I was healthy. All of my levels looked great. I, you know, was a typical child just in a larger body. I really think that how we think about food and appetite is a way to reconnect with the scripture and our tradition in a way that it reconnects our embodiment. Because if we think our bodies are evil, we live in this, 
we live just by our brains and we beat up our body. Like Paul says, <laughs> like tame the flesh. That's right. Um, but when we embrace our appetites, we have, we reestablish connection with our body. Um, and it's not just about us reconnecting with our appetites. Uh, it doesn't just affect us. So I'll tell a story about when I was a three-year-old child. Um, we went to a Bible church that took communion every week, which is a really unique thing for a Bible church. And if you're not familiar with the practice of communion, um, it's called, sometimes called the Lord's Table or uh, the Last Supper celebration. And you get a piece of cracker or bread and a grape juice if you're super evangelical. <laughs> <laughs> grape juice all the way. Yeah. Well, yeah. like little Jesus, like bread. Yeah. And I was sitting in the row with my parents and they were passing the crackers and the juice and what three-year-old wouldn't want to participate in that. Yeah. Ritual. It's snack time too. Yeah. Right. That it's tiny tree. snack at yeah. church right? with Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. And so I reached out to take some of that and my parents were like, no. And so that afternoon they explained to me that that was reserved for Christians and that Christians believe that Jesus died on the cross for their sins and that we could receive him to into our hearts. And so that afternoon I prayed to receive Jesus. Well, the next week at church, the snack was being passed around again and I reached out for it and my parents didn't think I had really grasped it. So really loud, I yelled, I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins and I want to take communion. And so they let me take it. <laughs> <laughs> Point, That's a really great point snapshot to Amanda. of my personality. <laughs> oh, yeah. I love that. Um, but what I realized many years after this story is that my appetite drew me to Jesus. My little child appetite of, oh, we're having a snack. That's what drew me into relationship with God. In what ways have I resisted my appetites because... The church has taught me that appetites are evil mm-hmm. as opposed to embracing them as part of the good creation that God has made. I read in the scripture, in the book of Acts, um, Peter is like the head of the church and is still thinking in a very Jewish versus Gentile way. Um, and that Peter won't associate with Gentile believers. And he has a vision. This is Acts 10, chapter, chapter 10, 9 through 23. Has a vision. And a sheet comes down from heaven and it's full of all these unclean animals. And Peter says, I've never, God, I've never eaten any unclean animals. I've only eaten clean animals. And, and God says, take up and eat these unclean animals. And this happens three times. So God is really insisting that Peter eat the unclean animals. Well, as soon as Peter comes out of that vision, visitors arrive from Cornelius, who is a Gentile, who is seeking to become a Christian. And immediately Peter knows that the vision was not just about food that he ate. It was about people that he considered unclean. 
So there's this huge connection between food and people and the way that we talk about food and the way that we talk about people. And so my experience of being drawn to Jesus through my appetite as a three-year-old chubby child unlocked something for me in realizing that the way that I moralize food in my life actually translates into the way I moralize body size and how I treat people who don't line up with the way that I eat. Mm. And that was really revolutionary because I have four kids and I started this journey of learning to eat and delight in food and reconnect with my appetites when my youngest wasn't even conceived yet. And trying to figure this out while I raise children to believe that food is not just a necessity, but is a good thing has totally messed with my evangelical upbringing, which said food was a necessity, but it needed to be limited. It was a source of sin and was like a gateway into all sorts of evil, like what I ate. Right. Well, gluttony, you know, like that's the thing that maybe feels a little old school that maybe people don't talk about, you know, that word's not thrown around. You're probably not hearing people preach sermons on gluttony at this point, but that overindulgence um, is what is thought of if you go too hard on a thing. And it's really interesting. Like my mom has a very fraught relationship with food. She taught like Christian jazzercise classes when we were younger. She's always been thin, but it was just interesting. Like, yeah, what was modeled for me in a relationship with the food. And I always joke, I'm I'm like the cook in our family. I cook all of our holiday meals I have since I was pretty young. And um, because my mom even hates cooking. Like the uh, food is just like a source of constant stress. It's a constant battle. She's uh, I think it comes up for her in like food allergies, a lot of like things that she she will restrict. Like let me tell you cooking a Thanksgiving turkey that doesn't have garlic or onion in it is uh the, it's a challenge. <laughs> well, a challenge and and maybe taste weird. I don't know. Lindsay's a magic magician in the in the kitchen though. So I but I know I find, you can do it. I find so much joy. Oh yeah, I've I figured it out long ago. And honestly, there's sometimes where I'm like, mom, I'm just not gonna defer to whatever it is you're you've decided you're allergic to now. I love I love my mother, but it I've you just can gone skip to the, point the where, turkey this year. Yeah, mom. I'm like, you can also just bring your own thing you're gonna eat because I can't tell what you will or won't eat on any given day. But in some ways, like I love this thought of like food can almost be like a rebellion, like me leaning into it and loving it. And I still have the internal monologue, like for sure. I don't know how to quiet those voices of like the things that they, you're just raised with, like this constant conflict of like, oh, is this too much? Am I going to feel bad? Or like that guilt that comes around food. But I'm really trying to shed that because like, I fucking love food. <laughs> I love food. And there's so much joy in it. And there's so much community that can come around it. And like for me, having people into my home and like cooking for them and sharing a meal with them is one of the most like uh, it's gonna sound cheesy, like holy things that you can do. Like there's something truly special about sharing. You know, like you think about like the Last Supper or what have you. Like that makes sense to me that that would be such a special time. And yeah, it's wild to me that like evangelicalism in particular is just so fraught with with food, with bodies, with fatness. It just I don't know. It's it's fraught with everything. It's why we all <laughs> like got the heck out of there. But yeah, it's it's just wild how we can be in our 
40s now and we're just now having these moments of like, oh, like these realizations of every day. I feel like I figure out something new about the messages I was raised with. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's super messed up. (laughs) So you're talking about gluttony and I want to share my favorite definition of gluttony. Um, Because it's one of the seven deadly sins we know, and we have always been taught to associate it with, quote, overeating. But Nicole Morgan, who was my podcast co-host for a long time, has this definition that she's come up with through review of the scripture. And she says that gluttony is consumption that harms our neighbor. Hmm. So if we're focused on a love of God and love of neighbor... It doesn't matter if I have four pieces of chocolate cake, unless I'm taking that cake from my neighbor and they don't get to have any cake. It's more about hoarding, like the hoarding of resources. Mm -hmm. Oh, Oh. dang. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Bring those tithes to the storehouse. Okay. We we've heard it before. It's the the gluttony of, of keeping it all for yourself and selfishness instead of sharing. That doesn't work with capitalism, though. So that's probably why we should tax the billionaires. But okay, (laughs) oops, Oops, I did it again. (laughs) We we always bring it back to something political at some point. I love Um, it. Okay, I mean, I did want to ask you. You, I'm gonna like shift focus for a second. So you call yourself a fat activist. I would love to know what that is. And also I've heard the term fat liberationist thrown out that people consider themselves that. Is there a difference between fat activists and fat liberationists? And what what does that look like for you? So when I started my journey towards basically embracing my body for what it was and not what I dreamed it would be one day, I called myself a size dignity activist because I wanted people to know that no matter what size they were, they had dignity. But I was also afraid of the word fat. And not necessarily for myself, because I can do the mental work needed to know that it is a neutral description, just like I have brown hair, I am fat. But for the people around me, and particularly Christians, because that's my primary audience, I knew that people don't like the word fat because it's so negatively associated. As I did more activism, I realized that I was shying away and keeping um, people from realizing what I actually am doing, which is fat liberation. Um, And fat acceptance activism is accepting your body how it is. Fat liberation is this view of the world where everybody is free to be fat no matter what. Because when we liberate everybody, because everybody is harmed by fat phobia, Mm -hmm. we liberate everybody and give them the right to be fat. There's no more power in anti-fatness. There's no more power in saying you need to be small, you owe thinness, you need to be make yourself um, fit a certain size or container, whether that be in body or personality. Fat liberation is liberation for every body. Hmm. And so I, I do refer to myself in the work that I do as fat liberation, um, fat activism, 
is just a term I use when it's shorthand. Yeah. And so I am definitely a fat liberationist and write about that pretty extensively in my book on what that means and how it's a social movement and not just a personal movement. Uh, I love that so much. Yeah, I do too. And I think that it is something that I'm glad it's starting to be a thing that people hear more and more about. Like I, the fact that it wasn't even a concept I was aware of until, you know, recent years, I think that like, and it's due to people like you who are out there like doing this work. And I, I imagine it's not easy work. And I imagine that like you're putting yourself out there and you probably get a lot of internet trolls. And I don't know, I'm just, I appreciate how like, blunt and bold and straightforward you are with like you don't mess around with the terminology and I just I really appreciate your perspective on all of it like I feel like you've blown our minds uh, several times again and again and again (laughs) I'm gonna have a lot to unpack at the end of this conversation this is gonna be liberating in a lot of ways for me personally and I know I know for listeners yeah, it's going to change a lot of people's lives and I I want to thank you for allowing us to just hear from you and for you being so honest and open with us. Um, This is a challenging conversation for me to have um, just about my own self-worth. It's just sad. It makes me sad for the younger, younger versions of us Um, makes me sad for the people who are still locked into that space and still in that world where they're, body isn't something that's celebrated and isn't something that's seen as beautiful and perfect. And, you know, as we age, as we grow, as we, you know, get pregnant, have babies, like mother, all these things change our bodies and change what we look like. And I have just recently been able to start looking at myself naked in the mirror and being thankful and being grateful and looking at each part of my body and saying how much I admire it. And that has really given me some, you know, new empowerment. Uh, I feel like I'm just a baby though on that path. I'm just starting it. Do you have any um, advice you can give us, Amanda, that's, you know, self-talk that we can empower ourselves with or things that we can continue this kind of tearing down of, anti-self-love in ourselves? I love this question because one of my core tenets is mantras or touchstones. And in my book, More of You, there are 10 chapters all centered around a touchstone that you can repeat to yourself. It's just the simple word like fat is not a bad word. Mm. Uh, All bodies are good bodies. Uh, I don't owe thinness to anyone. Um, But I think the one that I want to leave you with today is abundance is a good thing. Mm -hmm. We've embraced that abundance is good in every way except for the size of our bodies. And when we let our bodies be abundant, we reflect who God is. And that doesn't mean you have to be fat to reflect God, but it does mean that no matter what size your body is, when you let it be, that is a reflection of the image of God. So abundance is a good thing. Abundance is a good thing. I 
would love to share a mantra that I have about this, if I may, but there's a little bit of a story attached to it. So we love a Sarai story. So here's what happened. (laughs) Take us on a journey. (laughs) All right. So it's really fun because it reflects so many of the things that you've touched on, Amanda. Um, One of the things you talked about was sort of this, we live in our brains, we live in our heads. We basically cut ourselves off at the neck and we are not allowed to feel things. So we do literally numb ourselves out from the neck down because boobs are bad and because you should not feel sexy and it's bad to touch yourself. It's bad to do anything that involves any of that. And if we're doing it, it's like purposeful, right? Oh, we're going to produce a baby or something like that's, that's how we have to live every way. That's evangelicalism to me in a nutshell is like abstinence from all the things that are nice. (laughs) It's this like, not just experience of needing to suffer, but also demonstrating our suffering to others because that's what makes us good. And there was a period of time when, uh, right at the moment that I was starting to get divorced or like when I realized that I had a lot of healing to do, I got a mojo coach which was one of the best investments I've ever made, to be honest, because her whole thing was learning how to open up that the rest of your body and like mm-hmm. kind of start to refeel into the sensuality that's available to you. And she wrote a book and one of the tips of the book, because it was like little activities, was taking a bath and just celebrating every little inch of your body as you're washing it. Like, are so cute and like saying this stuff out loud to ourselves while we're we're doing that and celebrating every little piece of whatever it is my hairy legs i love them you know it it was such a liberating experience to start to do that kind of thing but it was also the beginning of me learning how to connect into my heart brain and my gut brain which is where your intuition lives which is where relationship exists we do not typically do that in Western culture, again, largely influenced by evangelical Christianity. So as I got divorced, I also decided like, I'm going to be vegan and that's my act of nonviolence. And it turns out my body is not good at being vegan. So I lost unlimited weight. Like I just could not stop losing weight in a way that actually really disturbed me and felt scary to me because I didn't, I didn't know like what to do. I mean, eating, eating meat for me was the actual answer to that question (laughs) (laughs) and beer, Um, (laughs) but (laughs) I didn't have enough money to buy beer then. So (laughs) I I was, I was very thin. Um, But every time I ran into somebody that I knew they were like, you look amazing. Oh my Mm. God. And I was like, thank you so much for accepting my suffering as like a sign of I'm doing great. I think I might literally be dying, but cool. And so there was this point where I started, like I shifted some things. I started eating meat again because I had to, but I also had to like take stomach acid pills every day because I just, my digestive system had been ruined by basically like orthorexia type stuff. Um, Orthorexia is for those of you who are listening and don't follow all of the disordered eating names is like refusing to eat anything, but what you deem pure into your body. Oh, just like Peter. Okay. (laughs) So I, I thought maybe that as I gained some weight back and like kind of got back into my body that I would find the perfect size because I realized I was 
never, ever, ever happy with what my body looked like. I lost too much weight and I was like, this is freaking me out. I don't have any curves anymore. Like what? And then I started gaining weight and I'm like, all right, I'm going to hit the right point. And then I overdid it. And then two years later, I'm looking at pictures of myself like, ew, I wish I didn't spend all summer drinking beer outside with my friends. (laughs) (laughs) This sounds terrible. Yeah. Yeah, But uh, it's like, why? Why do we have to be ashamed about hanging out with our friends having a beer? Right. I don't think we do. So yes. And it was a very distinct moment. I was putting on some orange pants that I had. Um, I loved them very much. And I had them in a couple different sizes because my body fluctuates up and down. And so I was putting them on one day, trying to button them and just having like the most intense muffin top. And then I looked at myself in the mirror and I was like, huh, I'm never going to hit that just right size because every size is just right. And it's always okay for my body to be what it is. And I think that it's important for me to remember, this is my mantra. My body is not the enemy. Pants are the enemy. (laughs) (laughs) Amen. Amen. I still think it all the time. And that's why I keep like sizes of pants. (laughs) a little bit of a spectrum around from when I've been different sizes, because I'll probably be that size again, whether it's bigger or smaller. And that's fine. I'm it's okay. I just need to like be all right with the fact that my body's going to do what it's going to do. And clothes aren't the measuring stick by which I need to value my body and my being. It's, it's so interesting that we put ourselves in these cages. Another word for pants. <laughs> yeah. Let me tell you. Soft pants for life. Am I right? Oh, yeah. I know. I'm so I'm just sad that we're like kind of back to being out in the world and I got to put on like hard pants sometimes now. Like <laughs> I work from home and I got really used to my soft pants and like I can't mm-hmm. just be in pajamas always anymore. And that's sad to me. <laughs> it is sad. It's one thing we lost from coming out of the worst part of the pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. I'm still going to uh, wear soft pants. I don't care. Yeah. I mean, I often do. So I feel like that's good. <laughs> anyway, thank you, Amanda. This has been truly mind blowing, like in a really, really cool way. I love, I have followed lots of fat activists. I, one of my dear friends is the person who kind of opened my eyes to that world. And um, I haven't seen it framed in this specific way around evangelicalism and and fatness and how we Uh, do moralize everything, both culturally and religiously. And I, I just love, love hearing your perspective on that. And that, um, the forbidden fruit is like almost all the foods. And why don't we just go ahead and say, eat what you want, live your life, have fun. Nothing's forbidden. And nothing uh, is forbidden and lean into that abundance. That's I'm going to take that with me, Amanda, where we can find you on the interwebs, where we can get your book. I wrote a book I mentioned a couple of times. It's called More of You, The Fat Girl's Field Guide to the Modern World. And it's available on Amazon or wherever you get your books. And then I have a podcast called Fat and Faithful, which is available wherever you get your podcasts. And my Instagram is your body is good with underscores in between all the words. We're just so grateful uh, that you were willing to come on, go, we'll, we'll put links to Amanda's site and her podcast and her book in the show notes, but make sure you go find her, follow her on Instagram. She's got really wonderful affirmations that she shares and your really cute fashion. I love your fashion post. She's like, we showed her fabulous fit. So make sure you check her out on the gram. 
maybe this is our new year revolution uh, episode about maybe what you resolve to do is just fucking accept yourself and love yourself exactly as you are all the time and just let it be okay. Yeah. Amen. And this has been Holy Ghosting. Holy Ghosting is a same team media production. Our producer is A.P. Weber. Special thanks to Eris Conflict Resolution and Meredith Hawley for supporting the show in so many ways. Holy Ghosting is supported by our patrons. If you'd like to join us and become a ghostie, head over to patreon.com backslash holyghosting. And there's even more ways to support the show. Rate, review, and share every episode. Or join the conversation on socials, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at Holy Ghosting Pod. And then everyone gets on their diets in January and I screw all of that. And they're going to be telling us that we need to be ashamed of our holiday bodies. But they're mm-hmm. not a dieting app. No, they're just a way for you to track your disordered eating. It's <laughs> wonderful. And then later I was like, wow, that was freaking weird. I ate less than 1200 calories a day wow. for like six months. That's the caloric needs of a toddler. Yeah. And I feel like I was functioning as a toddler at that point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a yeah. lot of tantrums happening. But... <laughs> it was, it was hard. So I was I... hungry. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Amazing.